Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, 26th chapter? We have, for many Lord's Days, many Sundays, we've been studying the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And no, this is not Lent, this is not Easter, um, but we are going to read the account today of the Last Supper part of it. And we'll pick up with it next week. And... uh, I'm a little bit sad that when we actually get into the Lord's Supper next week, we won't be having the Lord's Supper, and this week we have it. We won't quite get to uh, the words of our Lord that institute the Lord's Supper this week. This week, Matthew 26, beginning with verse 17. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Wait a second. Where's David? David, how late do I need to have a meeting at my house to not interfere with the small groups? What? After, yes. 7.30. Okay, tonight at 7.30 there's going to be a meeting at our house, which my wife doesn't know about. Um... Where is Camila? Camila, would you stand up, please? Say hi. Hi. Okay, you can sit down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Camila is here visiting from Denver. She's uh, a longtime friend of a number of us. And Camila understands sexuality and the issue of feminism about as well as anybody I've ever known in my life. Uh, for a number of years, she was a strong feminist. Um, the Lord has opened her eyes to the nature of the Christian faith, and I know what I'm saying. Um, and some of you, as me, some of you struggle with the issue of what Scripture teaches about men and women. And so I want to invite you to our home tonight so that Camila can talk to you about the Lord work in her mind and her heart And maybe there will be some others. I wanted Barbara to be there, but Barbara isn't here. She's probably still sick. And, uh... oh, you are here. I look for you in your normal place. Well, did did you get permission from the elders to move? (laughs) So maybe you could be there tonight. I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you're able to be there, we'd sure love to have you. And Barbara also used to be... uh, a feminist. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. My wife will be there too, and she used to be a feminist. Pierced her nose in 1975 and started the Women's Center at Westmont College, and you know what that's about. And uh, the reason I bring this up is it's very difficult for us to come to an understanding of what Scripture says in a day when we hate Scripture on everything having to do with sexuality. And uh, contrary to what everybody believes, we do have women speak in this church, but we don't have them teach and exercise authority over men. They have to be silent. You just said, well, they speak. Yes, they're silent, but they speak. And tonight, we'll have women speaking. I'm sure I'll speak too. But if you'd like to come, I encourage you to come. 
730 at our house. If you want to know, get out a pen, write down 2426 Rocky Cliff Court. That's our address. Or, Taylor, what's your cell phone number? (laughs) What is it? I can't hear you. I can't hear you. 360-5670. You can call Taylor and get directions to our house. We'd really love to have you. So come. And by the way, if you have friends that don't come to church here, but they need to hear this, bring them. If you have unbelievers who can't conceive of how Christians would ever have anything flow from their sexuality that has anything to do with authority and submission, bring them. It's a wonderful, wonderful way of leading them to the submission of Jesus to his Father. Fully God. Fully equal, and he submitted to his father. Okay? Now, back then to our scripture. Hi, Camila. This you wouldn't do in an Anglican church. I know that. Okay, you would in yours. Sorry, she's Anglican, but we don't hold that against her. And if you want to know what Anglican is, it's just a little bit short of Roman Catholic. All right, it's far short. Hey, wait, women don't speak in this church. Okay, go ahead. What were you saying? Okay, it's all the way across the Tiber. That's good. That's very good. Don't cross the Tiber. All right, Matthew twenty six, seventeen to twenty five. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. He said to him, You have said it yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you read all of the gospel accounts of Jesus' passion, his passion being his death, his suffering and his death, you're going to get confused about the timeline. And there are a couple of things for you to keep in mind as you try to sort out what happened when. First, the Jewish day does not begin at midnight as ours does, but rather at sundown. Second, the time we're dealing with in the Passion narrative is not one, but two religious festivals. It's both unleavened bread and it's the Passover. The Passover is Nisan 14, the Jewish month Nisan, and then unleavened bread is the next seven days. But frequently they would refer to both the Passover and unleavened bread together and call both of them unleavened bread, eight days. So as I read about this, I began to think about the 12 days of Christmas. 
And I also began to think about the complication factor of having a day where you start writing an email that's difficult at 11 at night and you end at 1 in the morning. So when you get done, you've said today, but it's actually tomorrow. And so you sit there and you think, well, what am I supposed to say? Is it yesterday, today, or tomorrow? And if you think this way and add one other factor to it, which is that the Jews and the Romans, different factions had different calendars that they followed. Now you see the complication factor that would result in there being confusion when you read a different account. You know, as you go through the four Gospels, one Gospel could be referring to both the Passover and unleavened bread together. Another Gospel might refer to the Passover separately from unleavened bread. All right. Some of them might be referring to yesterday and some to today when they're both talking about a meal at the same time. Because why? Well, because the Jewish day began with sundown. So you could refer, for instance, to today being Sunday, and then tonight, when you come to our house, you could refer to it as being Monday, right? It began with sundown. Or you could refer to the night as today. Tonight, which is today, tonight we'll have a meeting. Now, put all this together and add one other thing. Think about the fact that back at the time of Exodus, when you had the death angel going through the land and killing every firstborn male, all right, that the Jews were commanded to kill a lamb without blemish. And when that lamb was killed in the afternoon, they were then to take the lamb and they were to take its blood and put it over their doorposts, all right? And then they were to what? They were to eat the lamb. Now, let me ask you a question. That lamb that was killed in the afternoon, could that lamb be at the table eating with everybody that night? No, because then there's nothing to eat. The lamb had to die in order for there to be a meal. Now, what does that have to do with our account today? Well, think about it. Jesus Christ is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. All right? And the Passover is in the afternoon, the killing of the lambs at the temple is ritual. And then that night, eating the lamb. But Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So we have one of two choices. Either Jesus could be sacrificed when the lambs were sacrificed in the temple at that exact moment. In which case, Jesus couldn't be at the Passover meal because he's the lamb and he's dead. All right? Or Jesus is at the Passover meal but he's not sacrificed when all the other lambs are sacrificed. It can't both be true. Jesus can't be killed when the lambs are killed and present at the table when everybody's eating the lambs, can he? Because he is the lamb. So now put it all together. You've got different competing calendars. You've got the day beginning at sundown. 
All right. You've got both unleavened bread and the Passover being referred together as eight days unleavened bread. And you've got Jesus, and you have a choice. He can either die when the lambs die and not be there at the real Passover time, or he can be there with his disciples when everybody's having Passover, but he can't die when the lambs die. Okay. And so many, many pages are written. Figuring out what is the solution to all of these details, right? Now, I'll tell you what I think, but it's not worth much. What I think is that Jesus, think about it. What is the most important thing of all? The most important thing is that the type of the lamb of the Passover points forward to the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. I'm convinced that Jesus our Lord was, was, was killed, was crucified as the lambs were crucified, as were killed, were slaughtered. And so I don't believe that they had the Last Supper at the same time everybody else had the Last Supper. I believe that's one of the reasons you don't see meat showing up on their table. Because they couldn't have sacrificed the lamb according to the Passover and had it there when they ate because you can't go into the temple on a different day and ask to have the ritual Passover lamb sacrificed by the priests. Priests wouldn't do it, not the right day. So I believe that that's the solution to a lot of the timeline issues that you come across when you look at the Gospels next to each other. Um, Anyhow, here's how our text begins. On the first day of unleavened bread, which actually would have been Passover, but remember, it's called unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So here we see the day before the Passover meal, Passover itself was referred to as the first day of unleavened bread. And here we see... The disciples coming to Jesus and saying, okay, we're here, and we're prepared to celebrate, but we don't know where we should make the preparations. All right? Now, remember also from last week that Jerusalem, during the Passover and Feast of, Festival of Unleavened Bread, that it swelled to four to five times its normal population. So in, in, in terms of Bloomington, then we would go from about 70,000 up to about 350,000. Now, in a town that gets that big for a short period of time, what's true? Well, what's true is that it's very difficult to find a motel room. If you know you're going to have a religious holiday, you don't wait until you show up in Bloomington to call Fairfield in. And we also know that the center of the celebrations would have been rooms where somewhere between 10 and 25 people could have a meal. And so how many rooms are there here in our church today that could hold 25 people for a meal? We could. Any, any of the rest of you? They could. Yeah, you can. You do it all the time. Sure. 
And so Jesus would have made the arrangements ahead of time for a room. You can't wait until the last minute, right? And if you look at the account in Mark, you'll see that, in fact, that's what happened. Jesus says in Matthew, go into the city to a certain man, verse 18, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. In Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 14, we read... Jesus is speaking to them. He says, wherever he enters, speaking of this man, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room. And so that's where we have the phrase upper room, the upper room discourse, all of that. He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out, came to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And so in verse 18, he says, Jesus, go into the city to a certain man, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Now, the Greek word here translated time is kairos. And uh, from back when I took Greek at UW-Madison, I learned that... um, Well, I learned that the best way for me to remember the significance of this word often when it's used is to think of that time in a sickness where, you know, the sweat is pouring out of the person and the doctor comes in and the doctor says one of two things. He's either going to get better or he's going to die. It's the critical moment in a disease where you'll either live or you'll die. It's the critical moment. All right. Jesus says what? Jesus says My time, my critical moment is at hand. The fullness of time when all is ready. Shakespeare has that little... uh that little phrase that we're so fond of, I'm fond of, uh, maybe you're not. Um, there is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood, all right? So we refer to it as, as high tide or flood tide. And if you've ever read Horatio Hornblower, you know that the captain of a ship is always trying to set sail when there's a flood tide. You know, why? Because he doesn't want to get stuck in the salt marshes. He doesn't want to get stuck on a mud flat. He wants to have as much water as possible. Flood tide, critical moment. That's when he wants to sail. Woe be to the sailor that isn't there when it's time to set sail. All right. Jesus says, my kairos is at hand. All right. It's the critical, climactic moment, the time to which all things have pointed, the time when all is ready to be fulfilled. Now, we can talk about how all of the Old Testament points forward to the cross. We can talk about, after the cross, how everything in history points back to the cross. The cross is the center of history. We all understand that, most of us do, that this is the work of the universe when Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed, when he gave his blood and body for us. But I want you to narrow it down a little bit and think about the details, the the nitty-gritty of what's going on, because it's not just the cosmic kairos, it's also the, the critical moment The perfect timing in terms of Jesus, Judas, 
the scribes and Pharisees, Jerusalem, the Passover, it's also the critical moment there. Think about this for a second. All of Jerusalem knows who Jesus is. They all went out to welcome him with palm fronds and adulation when he entered in the triumphal entry. They all would have followed him with great interest, knowing that he raised Lazarus from the dead just a couple miles out of town. It was there for everybody to see. Everybody knew what he did. They all knew that the religious leaders hated him. I mean, you couldn't be a party to all of the, you know, the interrogation that they carried on publicly. You knew, you sensed the vibes, right? All of Jerusalem was watching him, all right? All of Jerusalem knew he went into the temple and he wasn't a bullhorn guy, he was a bullwhip guy, right? He threw everything upside down. He used whips. He wasn't like Rob Bell at all. He, he was... Completely, completely the opposite of Brian McLaren and every emergent church leader you've ever heard of. Jesus was not reasonable. He was not funny. He was not indirect. He didn't make suggestions. He took a bullwhip in there and, and he, he said every... Now think about being a Jew. Think about being in Jerusalem. He's raised a man from the dead. He's had constant conflict with every religious leader of your time. He's had the triumphal entry. He's cleansed the temple. Then he's told a series of parables that are unbelievably confrontational with those religious leaders, right? And we know from prior chapters of Matthew that the religious leaders want his blood in the worst way. There's just no question about it. And we know that they've hired Judas to give them his blood. We know Judas, being motivated by money, has sold him out. Judas has taken the silver, and now he's looking for a time to betray him. All right. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to let Judas know precisely where and when and how you're going to celebrate the Passover meal? What is Jesus doing? Jesus is making certain that he will be sacrificed as the Lamb of God precisely when his father decreed. When did his father decree? His father decreed that he would be the Passover Lamb. What do we know about the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin? We know that they have determined that they will not take him and they will not kill him. When? During the religious festivals. Why? Because it's packed with people. It would be like throwing a, throwing a match into a can of gasoline vapor. So we know that Jesus is heading towards his death, his crucifixion, at the time of the death of the Passover lambs. Judas is looking for a time to betray him. Judas has to betray him at a time when things are relatively quiet, not many people around. The Pharisees are com and, and Sadducees and, and scribes are, are committed to waiting until after the religious festival. So what's Jesus going to do? Is Jesus going to say to Judas and to the rest of the disciples, in a couple of days, so-and-so's upper room will be open. I've reserved it for us, and we will be having a private meal, just the 12 of us. Well, no, he's not going to do that because then Judas is going to do what? Judas is going to go to the Pharisees and he's going to say, Jesus is going to be all alone. There's going to be 12 of us in Jesus. It'll be in an upper room. 
It's the perfect time. So what we have is Jesus orchestrating things in such a way that we have um, him having to hide from Judas when exactly they're going to be at the upper room. This is why they had to ask him at the last minute where they were going to have the Passover meal. And it's also why Jesus didn't tell them until then. But it's also, we need to notice that Jesus, in going to this room, could not have Judas knowing beforehand because then he would not be able to eat this meal with his disciples. And he is set on having this meal with his disciples before he is arrested and before he is betrayed. So, nobody knows where it's going to be. They ask, he tells them. They go to the upper room. But then Jesus does want to die on Passover. So he can't just let Judas and the scribes and Pharisees do what they want because they'll delay it, and that's not God's timing. His timing is that his lamb will be sacrificed at the time of the Passover lambs being sacrificed. So his time is at hand. He's in the upper room, and it says in verse 20, Now when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. So it's the evening. In the Old Testament, we see that often it was true that the um, people would eat sitting. But here we see that they're eating reclining, and this is because that was the Greco-Roman habit. They would eat on uh, couches, three of them per couch. They would sit at tables that were in a U-shape. So you'd have a table here, a table here, a table here. You'd be able to get in the top of the U to serve everybody, right? And everybody would have been reclining in such a way that, that their feet were away from their table, their head was towards the table, and all of them would have been leaning on their left side because you did things you didn't want to touch food or people with the left side The right side was how you greeted people. The right side was how you ate. So you're on your left side, and your right arm and hand are ready to reach out for the common bowl. All right, the common cup. So everybody's reclining. Jesus would have been at the head or tail of the U. He would have been at the center of this U, the the end of the U. People would have been able to come in and serve. And from another gospel, we know that John was resting on him. Now, this is the part that I really don't like. And that is that um, uh, back then, uh, they would be three per couch reclining. And I also know that at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther often would sleep in a bed with three or four other men when he was traveling. And I don't like this. I don't approve of it. Um, Recently, I was down in Houston with my brother David, and a woman at, uh, uh, at a hotel tried to get David and me to sleep in the same bed together. And I kept trying to explain to her that I wasn't going to share a bed with my brother. And she kept trying to put me in a room with a king bed. And I kept saying, I reserved the room with two beds. And you need to give us a room with two beds or a cot or something. But I'm, you can give me sheets and a mattress on the floor. You you can do anything you want. But I'm not going to share a bed with my brother. And she was a young woman, so she didn't understand this. Then all of a sudden I noticed that out of the side office came the manager. 
an older woman standing behind this young woman. Pretty soon, there was a custodian, an older man standing behind the woman on the other side. And she kept trying to put me in this bed with my brother. <laughs> I kept saying, I don't do that. I did it once. I'll never do it again. And finally, to my intense relief, because they didn't have any cots, they were already rented out, they didn't have any other options, finally the manager spoke to her and said to her, uh, yeah, just go ahead and give him a suite. We have a vacant suite. Give him the suite. He'll pay the same price. Uh, I said to the young woman, it's a man thing. I said, I know from my daughters and my wife that it's okay with women. But trust me, it's not for men. And I took great pleasure in the manager looking at her and saying, he's right, it is a man thing. And then this older custodian said, he's right. <laughs> it's a man thing. <sighs> and I didn't have to sleep with my brother. So, Jesus with the disciples, it would have been tight, three of them per couch, all reclining, very, very, very intimate. More intimate than I care to be. Now, on top of the physical proximity would have been the fact that they were eating together. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that I was thinking earlier in the earlier service that when Joe and Eleanor Rice have us over for dinner, everything is prepared. They have the best food, the best drink, the best tablecloth, the best Indian bread, the best chutney, the best rice. And then Joe does something that normally he doesn't do. He's sociable. Joe will actually sit and talk. Now, we all love Joe. I'm not humiliating him. But generally, Joe is a man of action, not of words, right? <clears throat> so think of the intimacy of being at the Rice's for dinner. Everything's set up for you. You're given the keys to the house. You're given their table. You're given their dogs. You're given the husband. You're given everything you need to be content. You are in the family circle. All right? Now think about it this way. Think that the disciples have spent three years with Jesus, loving him and being loved by him. Make no mistake. It was intimate and it was love. They're in a room, an upper room. They're all next to each other. John's leaning on Jesus, three per couch, eating the same meal at the most intimate meal of the year, Passover, right? They're eating in Jerusalem, and none of their family's there. So it's just men. No wives, no children, no nothing, except these 12 men and their master. And then Jesus does what? He's reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. Verse 21, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And all of a sudden, what was an intimate and loving meal becomes a thing of terrible pain and sorrow. And Jesus isn't kidding. 
He doesn't say, I'm not kidding you, one of you is going to betray me, but that has somewhat of the feel, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, here's something I love. When Jesus says that one of them there in that intimate room of love is going to betray him, what I love is the fact that their response is this. Verse 21, And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely it is Judas. Right, Lord? <clears throat> I mean, think about this. If you were a disciple, wouldn't you expect that it was someone else? And wouldn't you be prepared to name who it was? I mean, honestly, in our session among our elders... I think I know which elder it would be. Actually, I've never thought about that until just now. And now I'm trying to think, which one would it be? It would be me. It would be the man that I said last week tries not to have to pay for his copies man that steals from the kitty. Okay? But you know what? Judas was good. Judas was completely hidden. Not one of them says, it's, it's got to be Judas. If they had known that Judas was stealing from the kitty, that, Jesus, that Judas was stealing from the common purse, don't you think that all of them would have said, it's you, Judas? I think they would have. I think Judas was very good at covering his tracks. And you actually see this here, because they, being deeply grieved, each one began to say to him, not surely it's Judas, Lord, but rather surely not I, Lord. And boy, I love that. Um, yesterday I was talking to a man, and I talked to a bunch of different men yesterday, so don't try to figure out who it is. But I was talking to a man, and at one point in the conversation I said to him, you know, you better watch out for this. And the man was like, I don't need to watch out for that. And so I sort of circled around behind him and let down the pressure and we moved on. But then later I came back and I said, you know, I think you do need to watch out for that because you told me you don't need to watch out for that. Does that make sense? If, if, if a wound is really pus-filled and hurting... It's probably infected. A wound that's healing, probably you forget about, right? Well, think about the disciples. Here they are. They're in a room together. One of them is going to betray them. And what I love is every single one of them is convinced that he's the one and just wants to hear Jesus say, it's not you. Surely it's not me, Lord. I love it when we have an accurate understanding of our own hearts, our own depravity, our own stupidity, our own faithlessness. I think that the principal beauty of, of going to different parts of the country and different parts of the world and worshiping with Christians is gathering together with those who love Jesus. And you know they love Jesus because they have meek and humble hearts. I think that is the blessed bond that ties our hearts in Christian love is that instead of the people of God being those who, who justify themselves, the people of God are those who are immediately saying, it's not I, Lord, because we know our hearts. You know? Huh? 
Can I get an amen? amen? Do you know your heart? Would you have been there saying, it's Judas, it's Tim? Or would you have been there saying, it's not I, Lord, is it? Is it me? And that second response is a godly response. That second response shows a heart that is under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a heart that has read Scripture with the eyes of faith. Christians are suspicious of themselves. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Verse 23, And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now again, this does not specifically identify Judas. Remember, a common bull, right? And so Jesus was not saying, look, right now, his hand is there with me. One of the ways we know this is that if it had been that clear to the disciples, do you think Judas would have been able to get out of the room? Not, not, not a chance. Not a chance. What do you think those disciples would have done to him? About like that poor guy that, I don't remember what he did, but I do remember that he died or almost died on the airplane after 9-11. Did he die? Seems like there was some guy that did something right after 9-11 on an airplane and everybody was like on him. So Jesus says, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl. And what Jesus is really saying here is not it's Judas. What he's really saying is it's somebody who is so intimate with us that he is eating with us. Again, the intimacy of eating, the intimacy of the physical proximity of them to each other, the intimacy of sharing the same bowl and the same cup. And the fulfillment of Psalm 41.9 Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. See that? Eating together is a sign of friendship and love and loyalty. But here it is one with whom Jesus is eating who is about to betray him. Then Jesus said this to the twelve, verse 24, The Son of Man is to go. What does he mean go? He means go to his death, go to his crucifixion. The Son of Man is to depart. He is to go. But, and then he says, just as it is written of him. In other words, according to God's decree, according to the prophecy of Scripture. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. First, a comment on the name he gives himself. Jesus is very fond of this name, the Son of Man. And when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is declaring himself to be one with us, to be for us. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the creator of all things. He's the judge of the whole earth. He calls himself the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He has been tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the Son of Man. This is not saying the way many people today would think it, that Jesus is sexually male. It's not what he means when he says Son of Man. Jesus 
is the son of man in the sense that man is used to refer to both men and women. Jesus is male. He is a son. He is not a daughter. But as the son of man, Jesus is the race. And what a tender statement it is of Jesus identifying with us. He could have called himself the Son of God. He could have called himself God Almighty. But he says the Son of Man. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Just as it is written of him, Scripture must be fulfilled. In other words, his death was not going to take place because of the strength of the Romans. It was not going to take place because of the ability to manipulate of the Jewish scribes and elders in the Sanhedrin. It's not going to take place because of the betrayal of this disciple. His death is going to take place because Scripture must be fulfilled. Because it is the plan of God from the very beginning, and now the Kairos has arrived, the critical moment when all things are ready for their perfect fulfillment. It is the plan of God. It is God's sovereign decree. It is God's will. And yet, yet what? The Son of Man is to go just as is written of him. And yet, but, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It is God's decree. It is the sacrifice for our sins that is upon him. Here are the stripes by which we are here. Here God Almighty is laying on him the iniquity of us all. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now, if I were to say that to you, without my authority being the word of God, you'd all consider me a monster. Because Jesus himself has said that this is according to God's decree. Don't any of you try the fancy footwork where you call this God's prescience. God's able to see into the future, and so Jesus is able to describe it in such a way that he sees it. Being omniscient, he's able to see the future, and so really all we're talking about here is God looking into the future and discovering what will be, and and then naming it. And, And so really Jesus isn't saying that God is in control of this, but rather that God's observant, God's prescient. He's able to see in the future. Calvin says, to soften a doctrine that appears to them rather harsh, Men put God's prescience in place of his decree as if God were looking down from a great height on future events but not disposing them by his will. Don't try fancy footwork to escape the sovereign decrees of God. Jesus says very clearly it is God's will. It is God's will that he die. It is God's will that he be crucified. It is God's will that he be betrayed that he be betrayed by someone who has his hand in the common bowl that eats bread with him. One of the twelve. One of the twelve that he loves. This is God's decree. This is God's sovereign will. Woe to the man by whom the offense comes. 
This is God's decree. This is God's will. Woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you will admit at this point that everything in you rebels against the juxtaposition of those two statements. This is God's will. Woe to the man that does the will of God. Right? Why? <coughs> Listen, people. Because you're an idiot. And that's the most sophisticated answer I can give you. That's all because you're an idiot. Because I'm an idiot. Because even our philosophy doctoral candidates are complete idiots. God does not need us protecting him. God doesn't need us doing fancy footwork to get him out of a bind. God doesn't need our sense of justice, our sense of fairness, our bright brains. What God needs from us is the eyes of faith that look at this book and say, God is true, though all men are liars. I'm a liar, you're a liar. Sociologists are liars. United Auto Workers are liars. Barack Obama's a liar. George Bush is a liar. I'm a liar, you're a liar. But heaven and earth will pass away before a single jot or tittle in this book pass away. You either live in judgment of the word of God or you live in submission. And they're, 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 they're never the same. They're never the same. You either honor the word of God exactly as it's written. Or you take authority over it and you will be broken by it. It's funny, in our family, we all know in our family that the Bible says that we have to hate our father and mother and brother and sister and wife. We all know it. But again and again and again, we want God to be broken on our family instead of our family being broken on God. And so we have a sense of what is fair and what is just. And it's carefully cultivated by American political ideology. And it's been so carefully given to us that none of us have the slightest question that what we think is fair is fair. And so it can't be fair that God decrees that Judas is the betrayer of the Son of God. And that he says it would be better for him if he had never been born. It's not fair. And so we come up with, you know, it's just God looking forward, discovering what's going to happen. That's all. God's not in control. And you say, oh, really? It seems to me that Jesus says he's in control. Scripture must be fulfilled. You say, well, yeah, but they looked forward. They saw what was going to happen. That's all it means. It doesn't mean he's in control. It doesn't mean he's fulfilling. It just means that Judas had made a decision. God looked forward, saw Judas had made the decision of his own free will. Because after all, what is love if it isn't free? You know, God has to be loved freely. Why? Well, because I have a sense of fairness that God must marshal himself to submit to. It's just, it, 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 people, you're an idiot. I'm an idiot. God doesn't need your help. 
God is God. And if you want to know what it is to be fair, and if you want to know what it is to be just, and if you want to know what it is to be wise, and if you want to know what it is to have knowledge, you go to this book, and you have it define fairness for you. You don't come to this book with your definition of fairness and demand that God submit himself to you. That's ridiculous. Come on. God. God. It's God. It's not you. You know, your mother may never have told you, but you are God. Your father may never have told you, but... You are not God. Your sense of fairness is stupid. Your sense of free will, your sense of justice, everything you hold precious about how God should comport himself to your standards is absolutely insane. Chill out and submit. Not to me. I'm under the authority of the Word. I didn't make it up. I couldn't. It's too perverse for me to make up. And I don't mean it's really perverse. What I mean is it's completely contrary to any thought I've ever had in my pea brain. The offense must come. Woe to the man for whom the offense by whom the offense comes. It would have been better for him if he'd never been born. So, okay, look at this. Look at it full in the face, okay? Look at it full in the face. It's all happening by God's decree from eternity past. It was set up, including Judas. You want to know why I say including Judas? Because it says in Acts 1, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So right down to Judas, God decreed it. Prophesied it by David. Not because God's prescient, but because God sets up all things for his own glory. Okay? Let me read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. Number one, God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So we know God is not the author of evil, and God doesn't tempt people, right? Because the Bible says it. Westminster says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Listen, there's no fancy footwork you can do to escape the fact that in this world there is evil and suffering. And you can't escape the fact that God has decreed all things. And you can't escape the fact that the Bible tells us that God is not the author of evil. 
that's the pressure cooker that God inspired. And he hasn't said more than that. And so if you're humble and meek, you take what Scripture says, not what a philosopher says, what Scripture says, and you're content with what Scripture says. And you don't try to explain it away with fancy footwork because you know you're an idiot, I'm an idiot. God is true and all men are liars. And so you just say the ipsima verba, the very, very direct words of Scripture. And if people don't like it, you say, well, it ain't me, it's God. And they say, well, I really don't like it. You say, well, it really ain't me. It's really God. And they say, well, I won't serve a God like that. This last week, somebody said to me that a relative would not bow the knee to God, would not believe, would not listen to God because his brother was a committed homosexual and had died. And this man would not, would not submit to a God who would send his brother to hell for something that from the time he was little, it was his identity. I go... Is there any person here that hasn't, from the time you've been little, had an identity as a particular sinner, a very specific sinner? Is there any woman here who doesn't struggle with jealousy and envy and bitterness? Anyone? Is there any man here that doesn't struggle with lust of one form or another, whether natural or perverted? Lust, which all is perverted. Is there any man? Man want to raise his hand? Man? Man here? Hmm? So apparently all of us, from the time we came from the womb, have had an inclination to sin. And God says, Be not deceived. I am not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The one who sows to his sinful nature, from his sinful nature will reap destruction. We say, well, that's not fair. And furthermore, Judas already was decreed that he would do what he was going to do, and that's not fair. And furthermore, you say that it would have been better for him if he'd never been born, and that's not fair. And what you end up with is nothing approximating the Christian faith. If you're going to take that path, that's fine. But don't call yourself a Christian. You're not a Christian. You're an American. But you're not a Christian. Because Christians live under the authority of the Word of God. And we particularly are careful to live under the authority of the Word of God at those points where we hate what it says. Because we have a sneaking suspicion that we're wrong. <laughs> That's what I mean when I say you're an idiot and I'm an idiot. The fall corrupted our minds. It didn't just give us lust. It gave us stupidity. It made us not understand words and their usefulness. It made us use wrong words. It made us, it made us understand other people to say things they're not understanding. It made us to think fairness in a way that God didn't think fairness. And it made us to think free will in a way that God never said was free or was a will. And that's the thing I want to end with. The Westminster Standards say that God is not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. And what this means is that you and Judas have free will. And you say, oh, whew. finally, he's giving it back to me. The free will I'm talking about bears no resemblance to what an American thinks free will is, because an American thinks free will means having every opportunity to do anything you want with no external pressure applied whatsoever. 
And the truth is that since the fall, you have had unbelievable external pressures to do evil in every way. To think stupid, to do evil. That's you. And it's me. And so Judas had free will. Judas was who he was. Judas made a choice that he would steal from the kitty. Judas's choices grew little by little by little until he made a decision to sell out his Savior. Judas had his Savior warn him at the table, one of you is going to betray me, him whose hand is in the bowl with me. Judas had a choice then to repent. And Judas got up and he went off and he betrayed the Lord. Do you understand this? And it would have been better had he never been born and he fulfilled scripture. That's the truth. One final uh, rabbit trail you might be tempted to take, and that is to say that scripture doesn't teach the perpetuity of hell. It doesn't teach the ongoing conscious suffering of worms and fire. And I want to point out to you that Jesus does not say it would have been better for him if he were to cease to exist. Well, actually, that is what he says. What he says is it would have been better for him if he had never been born. And on this text, dealing with this really trendy doctrine, all the emergent, all all the muckety-mucks with big brains that talk loudly in restaurants and use big words, people that are sure of their own opinions, in the evangelical Bible-believing church today, it is very trendy to believe in annihilationism, that those who belong to Christ will live forever, but those who do not belong to Christ and have faith in him have conditional immortality and will cease to exist at the judgment seat of God. That doesn't work. And here's what Edwards says. Edwards says the scriptures are very express and abundant in teaching that the eternal punishment of the wicked shall consist of sensible misery and torment, not annihilation. What is said of Judas is worthy to be observed here. Quote, it had been good for that man if he had not been born. This seems plainly to teach us that the punishment of the wicked is such that their existence upon the whole is worse than non-existence. He ceases to exist. Everything's fine. But Jesus says it would have been better for him if he had never been born. Because? Because he will live eternally in torment. Now, if you're discouraged by this, let me tell you something. We're going to see it in a few weeks. But do you know that every other man at that table abandoned Jesus at this time? And do you know that Peter denied him with curses? And so if you think of yourself as a Judas and you think there's no hope for me, remember that the Bible always holds out hope as Jesus did to this man he loved at that table. Judas did not have violence done to his will by the decree of God. Judas had every opportunity to repent. But line by line and inch by inch, his greed, his love of money, his theft, and then his agreeal to betray left him with nothing except the inevitable fruit of his wickedness. And so the moral of the story is today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent. Jesus will take you. For three years, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do, and Jesus loved him. Jesus welcomes sinners. Now let's have the Lord's Supper.